This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 58. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I'm here with my amazing... Beautiful. He's got a little scruffy, almost a little five o'clock shadow going on right now. Chris Graham. Chris, how you doing today, man? I'm pretty good, man. How about yourself? Uh, sorry, I just got a sip of my tea from my penguin cup. James, uh, leave I'm that doing in. Great. Don't, don't edit that tea sip out. <laughs> That's like got to sound awful because I, yeah. I put a ton of compression on my vocals during Ugh. this and you're going to hear like a gulp of tea. With headphones? No a thanks. gulp Sorry, of guys. tea at like mm-hmm. 20 decibels of gain reduction <laughs> is not the way most people want to start their day. That actually reminds me uh, back in the day, I was recording a band called Gideon and I'm, I'm kind of throwing them under the bus right now and they still exist. So uh, sorry, Dan, but their vocalist actually threw up in his mouth in my vocal booth and then <laughs> swallowed it at, th- at 30 decibels of gain <laughs> reduction, which like I had headphones on at the time and it's one of the most scarring experiences I've ever had oh, in my man. life. James, can you edit that sound bit in right now? Oh, uh, thanks <laughs> for the unsubscribes, guys. A grown man swallowing <laughs> his own vomit at 30 decibels gain reduction. Okay. Oh man. Hey, I, I have a, I have a question for you. Yeah. How has a uh, power nap been treating you? I've done like three in the past week. I didn't do one today because I just got so excited about work stuff. It's a struggle for me because you do years. Like if you go back to episode number 52, why every home studio owner should have a do not do list. If you go back to that episode, Chris talks about his do not do list is no work, no email, nothing after lunch before he's had his power nap. And that's something that he lives by. I don't have that on my do not do list. So I need to start Yet. working on that. But after lunch, it's like the perfect time to do oh, it. Oh, it is. It's great. I've just not been consistent with it. I do want to touch on one thing real quick. This is another thing that people listening to the podcast don't get experience. We don't really, this won't be on a video anywhere. Probably it's not worth putting on Facebook, but I got this in the mail, Chris. And for those of you who can't see oh, this, oh yeah, for my birthday, uh, my old assistant, Sean sent me a mouse pad. You oh probably heard gosh, that I don't use a mouse pad. Sean. It's the logo for the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, which is our faces in orange that were drawn up by my artist. And he's got a bunch of quotes from the podcast like poop, poop on there (laughs) because Chris and I, beginning of every episode, in order to sync up our audio, we say one, two, three, poop. We have shut your whore mouth. We have no bitch picking. That's another one of my quotes. It's just a whole, it's a whole bunch of our quotes. So it cuts out. Anyways, I'm not going to try to, to, to say this for our audience. I'll have a, a picture of it in our show notes though at the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 58. My love for Sean has increased at least 17% from seeing that. Sean's a swell guy. That's so. adorable. If you guys don't remember Sean, Sean was the guy who edited like the first 50 episodes of our podcast or like the first 40 episodes. And he was my assistant for like a year. Good people. And now his studio has gotten busy and he left to go do his own thing, which is cool. But he gave me this birthday present. It was super nice of him. So thank you, Sean. Miss you, buddy. All right. So today's episode is one that uh, I think we're all going to- Let me say something. Go ahead. I just wanted to follow up on the power napping thing because of how addicting that massive productivity and mental health increases. Man, once I got going down that road, and again, 12 minutes after lunch, I set my alarm for 12 minutes. I take a 12 minute power nap. It is my number one productivity hack. You know, it's weird. That's something I feel like I need to get more into. I haven't, the two times I've done it, I felt great the rest of the day, but I haven't experienced that like 
rush that I have to chase the dragon that you would, I imagine with a drug of some sort. Like I haven't felt that like, oh my God, what, this is the thing I've been missing. I'll go ahead and say like most things in my life that I've tried, like meditation, I've tried some like brain enhancing supplement stuff like alpha brain. I've tried all sorts like journaling. I've tried affirmations. I've tried all these like things that people swear by. And none of those things have necessarily stuck with me. None of those things that I thought were like going to be game changers have really done it for me. And so I think everyone has to kind of find their own thing. Absolutely. Not saying power naps aren't going to be in my future. I'm just saying like, I haven't found that thing that really pushes me over the edge to want to continue it. Well, that's, I think the theme of our entire podcast is hopefully, it's not that anybody would take all of our advice. If you're taking all of our advice, (laughs) stop listening. Go away. We're going to ruin your life if you do that. Yeah. Or you're going to be so perfect (laughs) that no one can relate with you. (laughs) You'll be six figures by tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. So definitely the advice buffet type of thing. And at least for me and for my body, that 12-minute power nap, unbelievable. But yeah, for me, the power in the power nap is in consistency. If you go like four, five, six, seven days in a row, you get that consistency it really starts to change and your body starts to be like, Chris, 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 Chris. It's like 1230. You really need to go to sleep for 12 minutes. Hey, in all fairness, I think that's honestly like a huge part of anything that you're trying that's new. Yeah. Um, If you don't give it enough to even give it a fair shot, you can't say it doesn't work. Like affirmations, I always found them cheesy. And I would say that probably tainted the effectiveness of it. Naps, I would just say a lack of consistency there. You know, I've really haven't had a chance to go to fair chance. Alpha brain. Oh yeah. It's like brain supplements. So like alpha brain, there's like another one. I think Tim Ferriss actually had one called brain Quicken, which he sold that brand off. If he talks about it in the four hour work week, but those I did give a fair chance. I gave 60 days on those uh, taking the supplement twice a day or whatever it called for. And that one didn't work. But anyways, all that to say, don't, don't try all these new things. That's what shiny object syndrome is, where you're just trying all these new things. You're not giving it a fair chance. And then you're just writing it off and moving on to the next thing. That's what I want to avoid. So I will say in all fairness, I have not given the nap a consistent enough effort in order to feel the effects of it. Well, I'm definitely a big fan of like, when you're trying to hack your performance, when you're trying to get better at something, you should probably start with like the natural stuff, like drinking more water or exercise or sleeping things. There's just all these if these have been around as long as humans have been around, probably big levers in the performance equation. Anyways, yeah, I love that conversation and it's a blast to talk about and to hear feedback from other people. They're like, wow, I tried this. It really worked for me. Or, oh my gosh, acupuncture or, you know, whatever, massage. For me, my latest jam, talked about it before, yoga. I love it. My wife and I have started taking yoga classes together. Funny story is I'm, I'm sitting on my sofa and it's like a vent pops up, a vent notification on my phone. It's like oh. <laughs> yoga at 7 p.m. I'm like, what the hell is this? I look at it and it's like got the instructor's name, the address of the place. Liz. Yep. Love Liz. Liz. Then I realized this is our shared podcast calendar that Chris had mistakenly put the Whoops. yoga on. Whoops. And so I texted him out of nowhere. Just like, hey, how's, uh, how's yoga going? Liz is my favorite instructor and probably confused you until you realized that it was the calendar, a shared calendar. <laughs> it took calendar. me a minute. It yeah. took me a minute. But yeah, yeah. I've, uh, we've, this is a, a big rabbit hole, but a useful one, I think, for you guys. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but for me, one of my big productivity killers is that I have left shoulder issues. I generally, when I work too much, I get too stressed. I, my body tightens up. And then it's just a runaway train, you know, of like, uh, I don't want to work because or, uh, I'm in a bad mood because I'm sore. Uh, I'm in pain and yoga has been an amazing way to get my mind, 
my mind doesn't get right unless my body's right. So case in point, Liz was in her class last night and she prefaced the yoga class last night with, now, don't feel bad if you fall asleep during this class. And I was like, yeah. Thank God. It's like nap for adults. <laughs> this is my kind of workout. Yeah, the yoga thing has been really, really helpful for me. I also want to say, we're just going to make this a regular segment because we're 10 minutes into the podcast and haven't said a damn thing about what we're going to talk about <laughs> today. Next on this week's segment of cool new shit. I love it. Yeah, my fiance got me a mocha pot for my birthday. Ooh. And it's like the super nice, like Italian made, like original one. And I will have to say that this is a very fun, interesting way to experience coffee. It's as close as I've gotten to espresso without it actually being espresso. And it's like this pot that you basically put like fine ground coffee in it, similar to an espresso. You don't pack it down as hard and it boils water up from the bottom through the espresso into the top chamber. And it's like super, super strong. It's like I essentially had five shots of espresso. I like drank a full coffee cup of espresso and I was jacked. I was wired (laughs) the rest of the day. It was too much. But it's, it tastes fantastic. I need to get one of those. Yeah, they're fun little additions. Yeah, I had one at one point and I ended up giving it away years ago. But I need to get back into that because with my beans, you know, like I'm I'm in a good spot with my roasting technique. But strength, really strength, full body coffee is always the pursuit, not watered down. Yeah, this is why you and I love AeroPress. I made my mom AeroPress over the Thanksgiving holiday last month. She couldn't handle it. She's like, oh, it's too strong. I literally had to fill the cup up. It was halfway full. I filled it all the way full with just plain water, and that was the strength she liked. That's awesome. Chris and I, we've kind of worked ourselves into a hole here when it comes to just how strong we like our coffee. Now we're just going to be drinking straight espresso the rest of our lives. Yeah. I'm just going to start roasting beans and chewing them in the morning. (laughs) I'm not, I'm going to remove water from the equation. (laughs) Funny, my mom usually gets me chocolate covered espresso beans for Christmas each year. Like it's a stocking stuffer, they're delicious. Nice. I yeah. love them. Uh, in case you're listening to the podcast for the first time, this is not how things usually go. Yeah, we're in a good mood today. Yeah, Chris and I are both coffee sluts, absolute coffee sluts, and we roast our own beans. Chris got me into that. We love AeroPress, and now this mocha pot thing has been something fun thrown in the mix. I wonder if we could get a coffee sponsor for the show. Maybe Dude, our... that would... I mean, it's perfectly in line. Like, you yeah. drink coffee while you work. Like, it's just... Yeah. Oof. Well, and, and the other thing is, like, you guys, you listeners, you producers and engineers and stuff... If you're turning on a bunch of musical influencers onto coffee, that could be good for a coffee. Yeah. I'll call Sweet Maria's, guys. Yes. That's where we get our beans from, sweetmarias.com. Shout out to Sweet Maria's. Actually, here we go. Here we go. Here's a whole segment. Here's our Coffee Slot Week segment. We use Sweet Maria's to order our unroasted beans. We both use a- About six bucks a pound. Yeah, six bucks a pound. What's the roaster we use? The Fresh Roast 500. We don't live together, by the way. We just have the same rig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, just for you confused people, Chris lives in Ohio, I live in Nashville, but we both use the same roaster and uh, we both use AeroPresses to make our coffee once it's roasted. And I use a Brevel, like a high-end nice grinder because you can set the size, it remembers the setting, you don't have to time your grind, you can just grind it, sets it for 12 seconds and it's done at the 40 setting. You use a hand grinder. I use the hand grinder, it's like 20 bucks, mm. it's great. That's it for Coffee Slut Week. So I'm sure at least one of you is like, oh, get to the good stuff, teach us how to grow our studios. Here's the thing, like I'm only half kidding. If a client comes to you and they're thinking about recording with you or you're trying to get an internship at a studio or whatever, to look them in the eye and say, I will make you the best cup of coffee you've ever had in your life is massively powerful. Like you guys want to know how I got on this podcast? I made Brian a cup of coffee. 
And it was no a done deal. No joke. It was a done deal. <laughs> the second I had a Chris Graham good cup of coffee. And no joke, I have people coming to me just asking if they can buy bags of roasted coffee beans for me. I will never sell a bag. My agreement with my fiance is that I will never monetize my coffee hobby because I have this bad habit of monetizing my hobbies. But I will say that coffee that you roasted yourself like the day before, that makes a great gift for people. Just And it takes you oh, yeah. seven minutes. It's, it's no sweat off your back. It's like 75 cents worth of beans but it's such a high value to them that they get freshly roasted beans that taste amazing. Yeah. If we can turn even a few of our listeners onto being little coffee sluts, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all about that. <laughs> so here's a cool tip. I don't produce anymore. Maybe someday I will occasionally, but I would imagine if I had a artist coming over and I was like grinding my beans by hand and like pouring out the water at 174 degrees and doing the whole like ritual in front of them and then handed them that cup of coffee they're going to feel so cared about and so valued. Their performance will be dramatically affected by having the best cup of coffee they've ever had. It's a mind-blowing experience. So anyways, coffee is a great way to manipulate your client's emotions. So I <laughs> recommend it. All right. So now that we've had enough coffee slut talk and other stuff, let's talk about what we're going to be discussing in today's episode. I have a feeling the fact that we just spent 10, 15 minutes talking about pre-talk is almost our pre-episode banter that's usually like two and a half minutes. Yeah, that was a banter record. Yeah, yes. Yeah, world record on the Six Figure Home Studio podcast. I will say that this is probably going to be a long episode because there's just so much good stuff to talk about in this subject. And the subject is three separate paths to six figures. We're going to discuss three different business models that you could potentially use because here's the deal. If you choose the wrong business model for your skill set and your abilities, you're never going to make it. It's one of those things that like, there are massive implications for choosing the wrong business model. And Chris and I are going to discuss the difference between his business model and my business model. And then we're going to propose a third business model that is stuff we've talked about in the past, but we haven't really discussed in depth yet. So Chris, do you want to go over the three business models real quick? For starters, some of you are probably thinking business model. What in the hairy heck is that? So <laughs> business model- the hairy heck. It's kind of hard to define. It is literally like the basics of how your business operates. Do you take a payment before you do work? Do you take a payment after you do work? Are you going after big clients? Are you going after small clients? Like it's all the nitty gritty that you could say that what you're doing isn't the important thing. It's the actual financial levers and gears and how they all function together. That's business model. So that being said, there are a couple different business models that you can have in our industry, in the audio industry. One of them is Brian's business model. Big clients, big money, not a whole lot of them. So high dollar, high value, low volume, meaning like I'm doing a small amount of them per month and per year. Right. My business model is completely the opposite. And that's one of the reasons we make good co-hosts on the show. My services are mastering. I do many, 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 many mastering projects, but my price is pretty low, about 55 a song starting there. And I'm more around 600 a song. Right. So I need way more customers to have a year that's over six figures than Brian does. There's upsides and there's downsides to that. We're going to talk about the differences there, but the third business model that we're going to talk about. Brian, why don't you take that one? Yeah, the third business model is one you're seeing a lot more these days in other industries, especially software. And that's the recurring revenue model. That's why you see so many software companies try to get you on a subscription because it is more predictable and you know you can budget more. There's a whole lot of benefits we're going to talk about with that. But there's also some opportunities within the audio world 
that you can take advantage of recurring revenue that you may not have thought about before. Now, we've talked about some of these. We've touched on them in the past, but we're going to go a little more into depth about this on this episode. The third business model is a recurring income, a recurring revenue business model. So all three of these business models are predicated on something we talk about a lot on the show, and that's niche. If you have a niche where you're like, okay, I do essentially the same service for the same types of customers, whether that's a small number of customers at a large dollar amount or a huge number of customers at a small dollar amount or a reoccurring revenue model, subscription-based in some way, those are the three most popular ways where people are actually successfully breaking six figures. I'm not aware of anybody, I'm sure there's at least somebody out there who's consistently making six figures who has all three of these business models and they try to do them all at the same time. They started, hey, we're going to do all these things. Everybody that I know that's kicking ass started with a lot of things, didn't do so well, picked one of them, began becoming really, really, really good at their specialization. And only after they had super mastered it, they began to expand onto other things. And I have to kind of agree with you on that. I don't, I can't think of, and there's probably some out there, but I can't think of off the top of my head, a single person who's earned a substantial amount of money in audio that hasn't had one of those three business models, whether it's high volume, low dollar amount, high dollar amount, low volume, or some sort of recurring revenue. And you could also probably chalk up recurring revenue to songwriting royalties Yeah, you definitely because could. Uh, that would fall into that as well. So I do know some producers that have done really well with that alone. So there's upsides, there's downsides to all these business models. We're going to talk about that and kind of compare and contrast. This is fun because, you know, Brian, you obviously chose the business model that you chose. And I obviously chose the one that I chose for different reasons. And ultimately, choosing a business model is not just about success. It's about building the life that you want. And what you want your life to look like, you can't just like open a book and be like, yeah, that, that's what I want to do. It's different for all of us. And that's why it's so important that when you're listening to a podcast like this, that it's a choose your own adventure, that it's an advice buffet and that you figure out what tools are available and then you apply them to build the life that you want. Now, important stuff. If you don't know what the life you want looks like, none of this matters. Go figure that out and try to figure out what, you know, if your definition of the life that you want is quote unquote successful, what you're really saying is I just want the respect of my family and peers. That sigh right there. Don't edit that out. That's my response there is you're going to have a hard time, one, breaking six figures because you're a ball of emotions. You're going to have trouble breaking five figures. Yeah. Your motivations are all over the place. And some days you're going to want to feel like impressing mommy and you're going to work really hard. And other days you and mommy had a fight and you don't care about trying to impress her. So you're not going to have a good day in the studio. So let's get this rolling. So Brian, tell us about your business model. High dollar, low volume. Yeah. So my business model is not how I started. When I first started, I was 50 bucks a song. There's no way you're breaking six figures at 50 bucks a song at the amount of time it takes to fully produce track engineer, mix master a song. There's just impossible to do that. There's not enough time in a week. I started off that way and just slowly inched my price up as I gathered demand for my sound. And I've eventually reached a point where I could charge a very high amount considering the amount of time I put into it. Now there's a lot more that goes into this because I made a change in 2015 where I cut out tracking and producing 
and lodging of artists completely. I cut that out to where I wasn't working with bands in the studio, but I was only doing mixing work. And that's why I did a lot of changes, which we can talk about, but it's not really that relevant for this conversation. But it was still, in compared to your business model, it was still high value, low time compared to yours, which is low time, low value, high volume. So, you know, I, on average, about 20 songs a month that fluctuates now. I'd probably do a little less now than I used to, but, you know, charging around $600 a uh, song, it doesn't take a whole lot of songs to break around 10K a month. It doesn't take a whole lot. So, you know, nowadays, even if I just do 10 songs in a month, that's still six grand, which is still a solid amount of income. Well, you said something interesting there that inching your price up. And, you know, we could do a whole episode on that, raising your rates. And we probably should because I need to learn how to do that. I think maybe, maybe not. We'll see by the end of this episode. Yeah. So that's a super important part there of basically, if I'm hearing you right, your story was you started really cheap and like most of us, you know, did the same thing and we're basically making $5 an hour when you first start out, if you're lucky. Not only did I work for cheap, but I did everything, which is, you know, two mistakes, but at the same time, and this is something I've talked about more and more recently, that first paid project I did, I only made three, four bucks an hour on it, which is ridiculous, but it got my foot in the door for my first paid project. And then that artist ended up coming back to me several times throughout my career. And I probably did around $10,000 worth of work with that one client over their lifetime. Not only that, the amount of people they referred me to over my career brought in tens of thousands of dollars. If you count the people they referred me to and the people, those people referred me to, it's this whole networking effect that all stemmed from that first artist. So when you're just getting started out, this is kind of a side note. Don't worry about trying to charge top dollar like I'm talking about today. It's okay to take a bath and get kind of quote screwed over in what you're getting paid on early projects. But just note that you need to make sure you're working on an upper trajectory with your rates and you're not sitting stagnant at a place. If you're sitting stagnant, there's probably a reason for it. And hopefully this podcast and maybe even some of this episode can help uncover why that is. Yeah. Well, in retrospect, you know, we were basically doing about the same thing. I was in a different genre than you, but when I first started out, you know, I was like the all singing, all dancing producer. I would try to find an artist, usually singer songwriter, and I would do everything other than like, well, I would help them with writing, but mostly it was like, okay, you're going to sing and play guitar and I'm going to fill in the gaps. If I could go back and do that again, I was probably a little too aggressive early on. And I like what you said about kind of take a bath on those early projects. What I would have done in retrospect is I would have sold the artist on doing a project with me, and then I would have spent almost all the money on renting a studio. What I did instead was spent almost all the money on gear. It worked out, sort of, but in retrospect, I would have done more of a shiny, flashy experience where it was like, hey, I'll, I'll even hire an engineer. And if you want to get into making records, the solution isn't necessarily to become an engineer. I would say if you're thinking about getting into making records, the solution is to hire one and convince an artist to let you like produce. You don't have to use that word, but that's what you're essentially doing is like, hey, I'm going to facilitate. I think going over some pros and cons of this business model will be prudent at this point. And I want to talk about the first, let's talk about the good parts of this business model where you're charging a lot, but doing a relatively small amount of work. I'd say the first pro in this business model is the fact that Deal flow is extremely sustainable. And what I mean by deal flow is if you are trying to get just mix 10 songs a month, which is six grand, or let's just say 15 songs a month, which would break you past the six figures point. If you're trying to look for 15 songs a month, you could probably get that in three to five paid projects because you know most projects are going to have two, three, four songs involved with it. Some are going to have more than that. But if you're looking for three to five paid projects per month, do you think that's that hard 
to get the amount of leads required to do that. So if you just think about it, we talk about this in a funnel mindset to get three to five paid projects. I may have to send out 10 to 15 quotes each month. And to get 10 to 15 quotes, that means I need to get about 200 to 400 people to come to my site every month. That is a lot easier to do than Chris's business model, which requires hundreds of leads per month. In my world, 10 to 15 leads per month is a much, much more manageable way in order to break that six-figure mark. So that's the biggest pro with this business model is it takes a lot less work for communication with your clients, with managing quotes, with generating quotes from clients. All of these things are a walk in the park compared to Chris's business model. Yeesh. Yeah, we'll talk about yours in a second, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, I'd say the second pro with this business model is you get a lot more, I'd say, FaceTime with your clients. Now, I do mixing work now, so I don't get as much literal face-to-face time as I used to when I was doing full tracking, editing, mixing, and mastering. But either way, if you're doing a mixing project, it's a lot higher touch, and that means I get more communication time with them, which means I build a deeper relationship with those clients, which means I get more referrals from those clients because I've built a relationship with those clients. If you're in a business model where you're working with a lot of clients and you're spending a little time with each of those clients, it's a lot harder to build any sort of deep, meaningful relationship with your clients. Not saying it's impossible, but it's a lot more difficult. So in my business model, being able to build those relationships means I'm going to get a lot more business from those people down the road. Not only when they come back to me, but when they refer their friends to me for mixing services or back in the day when I was doing tracking and editing services. So it was a lot easier to get started because with mixing and mastering or tracking and producing, if you don't have a good relationship with the clients, it's really hard to generate referrals. And for me, the lifeblood of my entire business is referrals because for 456 Recordings, which is my studio, which I don't really talk about it that much, 456recordings.com, that's my studio's website. For anyone who wants to check that out, if you've never really looked me up, that's where I live. In order to sustain my income, I rely completely on word of mouth. I don't do paid advertising for my studio. I do a ton of paid advertising for the six-figure home studio as a website, but I do very little to no paid advertising for my studio. And that's because in the business model that I've chosen, word of mouth is more than enough to sustain my business. Uh, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So the issue with your business model is consistency. Oh my God. Yeah. So with my business model, because I'm working on working for hundreds of clients a year, each month looks pretty much just like the last, you know, like it might go up or down maybe 20%, but very, very rarely is there ever any like, oh man, I don't have any. Yeah. That's, that's like one of the biggest issues with this business model, because there's a few things that come with this. And this is where we kind of get into the cons of the high dollar value, low amount of project, my business model. This is where we get into the cons of this. One of the biggest cons is that inconsistency that you talked about. And that's because If you miss one project, say one person cancels or that one big project that you've been talking to for the last six months falls through the cracks or they break up or they go with another producer, you just missed out on five or $10,000. That's a substantial amount of income tied to one client. Or let's just say you have what I call a VIP client. That's someone that sends you a lot of work every month. As a mixing engineer, there's a few studios that I work with that will send me five to 10 mixing projects a year. And that's a substantial amount of income. Well, if they find another mixing engineer to work with, or they start mixing their own stuff, then I lost out on a client that was a good five-figure chunk of income that I could have counted on every year, but it's now gone. So my studio can hit wild fluctuations. And in 2015, that actually happened to me. 2015, January 2015, I had a $20,000 a month. And I could pull up the numbers here, but I'm not, I don't have them up and ready for me. But it was like 21, 20,000, 20,000, 21,000, something like that in January. That following February, one month later, I made $1,800. Oh, <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> I don't know any other businesses where you're going to have that wild of a swing in income Ooh. from one month to the next in the same year. That's insane to me. Yeah. And so that's the kind of stuff that you're going to experience if you're going after this business model. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Well, man, yeah, that is very intense. And I know sort of my perspective as a mastering engineer is interesting in this conversation because as a mastering engineer, I'm working with you. I'm working with people that have your business model. So I have relationships with just tons and tons and tons of mix engineers and producers and all singing, all dancing producers. So I'm hearing a lot of stories and especially because it's like, I am the finish line. It's like, Hey, get it, Chris. He's going to put the finishing touches on it and then it's done. And at that point, like the producers are, if it was a rough client, I'm the shoulder to cry on. Yeah. Like the massive up and down swings of that business model are brutal. Yeah. It can break a lot of studios that are not financially prepared. I always had a six month cushion of living expenses to where if I could go six months without being paid a dollar oh, and I'm fine. That's amazing. But most people, I would say 90% of people do not have that in the bank. And again, that's why a lot of studios can go out of business is because they are not financially prepared for that sort of swing in their income. Yeah. Well, and let me sort of encourage you there. The fact that at that age, it's not that long ago, but you know, it seems like forever ago that you had the wisdom to have that cushion, to have that, you know, we talked about this on previous episodes, to have a runway where if you suddenly didn't have work, you're going to be okay. You, Mr. Listener, Mrs. Listener, whoever's listening, if you are, I don't know, in the 50th percentile as far as skill, but you're in the 90th percentile as far as having this sort of wisdom that Brian had to have runway, to have some money in the bank so that you can afford to live even if you don't make anything. It doesn't matter if other engineers are better than you. If they're in the 10th percentile financially, just wait for them to go to business because they will. At that point, those clients are coming to you. If you go back to episode number 57, the last episode we did, where we talk about debt, living in debt is the opposite of living with an emergency supply of money. Yeah. So like for me, if I had a string of bad months, it just came out of my emergency fund. And then until that emergency fund got slim, which it never did, I never went below half on my emergency fund. But you know, as that emergency fund's going down, I'm not that stressed out because I can see, if I can physically see in my bank account how many months of runway I have left before I'm broke and I'm gonna go into debt. But when you're in debt, you're constantly working back from the other way. When you're having good months, you have to pay that debt down and then whenever you have a string of bad months, you're watching your debts pile up and you have no end in sight of when that's going to happen. And so if you are the person where you're constantly in debt and you're always trying to work your way out of it, and you never can. Well, go listen to Dave Ramsey. He has a whole podcast. He has courses of his own. He has books, Total Money Makeover. I'd go recommend that book. There are a lot of things out there that can help you live the opposite of that. And that's who I followed when I was getting started and had my emergency fund in place. Oh man, that's awesome. So this is an interesting segue here because we're talking about these first two business models, which is low volume, high dollar, which is you, or low dollar, high volume, which is me. This is a good segue because debt is a much, much different conversation when you have a high volume, low dollar. This is a good segue because I know exactly where you're going with this. Yeah, because when you're doing high volume, low dollar, statistics are your friend. When you're doing high volume, low dollar, and you've gone through the trudge of generating enough leads and enough buzz so that you're getting that consistent work. So for me, my months are super duper consistent. To me, that's like the best part of your business model is yes. you just have such consistency. And for the listeners who don't understand why, just think about for a second, think about this. If you work a day job, you have a single source of income. 
And if that employer fires you, that single source of income is gone. Yep. And so in my world, I have multiple sources of income, which is great. So if I lose one of those sources of income, I have dozens more. But we talked about it before where one lost source of income could still be 10 grand. It's still a massive amount of money. Well, you look at Chris, Chris has hundreds of sources of income because every single one of his clients is a little trickle of income into his bank account. So if you have Chris's situation, Chris has what's called diversification in his income, meaning that he can lose multiple projects and he won't even feel it. He won't even notice it in his bank account because he has so many other people paying him. So that's the beauty of this business model is that stability and something called statistic significance, meaning when you look at his data on Google Analytics or in any of his website stuff that he has going on, there are more than enough people that come to his site and have gone through his funnels to where it is statistically valid, meaning that the numbers are not flukes. It is completely consistent. And that generates this number every single month that he can almost guarantee he's going to get within reason, obviously. Yeah. Well, and usually if there's a shocker, it's a shockingly big month. It's like, wow, why did... Basically, what will happen is some sort of thing I did accidentally marketed the snot out of me and a bunch of new projects showed up. But it's basically the same each month and has been for, I don't know, five years, six years, seven years. Like it's been a long time where it's been like just a consistent growth each month. And, you know, there have been like plateaus I've hit and that's, you know, another conversation. But back to my point here about debt. When you are high volume, low dollar, and that was very intentional on my part, debt becomes manageable. You can make investments and be like, oh yeah, 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 10 grand in debt or 20 grand in debt or whatever. Well, I know what my cash flow is. I know my deal flow is consistent. So I can start to take risks with a business model like that, that somebody in a large project, small volume, it would just be really scary and really dangerous there. Yeah, like if I think about like, say I set aside a marketing budget of 20 grand a year, there could be months where I spend two grand that month and I never see a single penny of it for six months. That means I have six months of spending two grand. That's $12,000 before I see a single dollar return to me because it's just one of those things. It, it could be a month where I get a ton of income or months where I have no income. There's no rhyme or reason to it because there's no statistical significant data out there. There's just like, you're hoping that one person, that one client you're going to get is going to come to you. Whereas in your world, there's just so many people you know, in your business model that it just makes sense for you. Well, and let me talk about that. So what I did with my business model is I got lucky. Luck had a lot to do with it. I had a really good idea for my website, the before and after player. So what I noticed was that in mastering that most people had no freaking clue what it was. And I built a really great website, chrisgrandmastering.com, where you can select the genre of your song, you know, let's say rock, and then you can hear the unmastered version and switch back and forth in real time through the master version. So what made this a good idea was it, made it easy for people to understand, oh, oh, wow, oh, it's warmer, it's louder, there's more punch, there's this weird, like, nuancey, magical thing happening. I get what he does. I want that for my music. So what I did was I started advertising it on Google AdWords. Again, luck here. Nobody was using Google AdWords. It was really, really low competition. It's really high competition now. So I started putting, I think my first monthly budget was 300 bucks. That's more than I'd probably recommend at this point. But I started investing in advertising. People would come, they'd hire me. So I was sure that the advertising dollars I was spending were working. And then I would raise my budget up a little bit the next month, maybe 320, maybe 340. And eventually, you know, a year later, it's like, okay, I'm spending $500 a month. And so when Brian says budgeting $20,000 a month in marketing- Per year, per year. Per year. (laughs) What you do not do 
is take $20,000 in loan and spend it. That's awful. You don't know if you're going to make money on that. So what you do is you start spending small amounts of money consistently and you see if it works. And if it does, then you raise the budget. And, you know, I have spent way more money on advertising than I've spent on my house. I've owned my house for like 11 years. So I've spent a lot of money on advertising, but these are pretty sure bets because it's a budget that I spend consistently each month that I tweak a little bit. And so when you are high volume, low dollar, you can start to learn if that's working. When you are low volume, high dollar, you don't know if your advertising is working. So my advice there would be, and we've talked about this before, you should spend money. Everybody with a business should spend some amount of money on marketing. If you're not, it's probably because you don't know what's possible with paid marketing. And the best place to start is remarketing. Remarketing, we've talked about this before on the podcast, is essentially if someone comes to your website, that they'll begin to see ads, but only after coming to your website first. That's really cheap. Let me add to this real quick, and I don't want to make this a whole episode about ads, but I do want to just point out a couple things about the business model differences when paid advertising comes into play. With Chris's paid advertising model, his average project size is probably somewhere between $250 and $500. That's just a guess. You can confirm that. Okay, cool. In my business model, it's usually closer to $2,000 to $2,500. Now, from what I've seen best practices with paid advertising, when you're testing different ads out, you typically want to spend two to three times your project size, your average price per project, two to three times that number before you can say that that test is a success or a failure. And that's just for one test. So if you're running 10 different tests in Chris's world, that could be up to $1,500 per test. That's about right. That's $15,000 to test 10 different ideas. And some of those will work. Some of them won't. Some of that'll be a waste of money. Some of that'll see a return for him. If you're just brand new and just starting out, that's a big investment for anybody. But when you go to my world and you're spending $5,000, $7,500 per test, that's fifty dollars to $75,000 for those same 10 tests before you can really say if it's a success or a failure. And I don't know anyone with that kind of budget just yeah. starting out. And I, even myself, it's really, really difficult. And that's why I don't do paid advertising with my studio. Now with a six-figure home studio, it's a different story because you know, I'm advertising different things. And some of the courses I sell are in a, in a price range where I can do all these sorts of tests. But in the studio world where I have this $2,500 average price per project, that is extremely difficult. I'm going to drop a really good nugget here. I'm going to reach way in my back pocket here and pull this out. My advice to you, if you are considering paid marketing for your studio, whether you're high dollar, low volume or low volume, high dollar, pay attention to this. This is the good stuff here is that you start with marketing campaigns, you do something as a marketing campaign, whether that's Facebook ads, Instagram ads, YouTube ads, whatever. Just be sure that your first venture into it has several things. One is a sure thing. Spend your money on corners of the internet where it is almost guaranteed that one out of two people that see that ad are going to buy from you. Do not start with a silver bullet you know, I'm going to bet the farm mentality. Don't do that. That will put you out of business. Figure out where on the internet can I run a small, cheap paid ad that's guaranteed to win. Number two is have a monthly budget. Those are the two things. And if you are right about the spot that you're advertising on the internet, like let's say that you mix world music and you go on Google 
and world music's like sort of rhythmic, it's heavy drums. And so you go on Google and you find that nobody has any ads on the keywords world music mixing or mixing and mastering world music. There's no ads on that. Now, right away, you can say, okay, literally no one's advertising on this. This is my niche. Spend 50 bucks a month to show up first on Google search results for that. That's a guaranteed win. People who want what you offer are looking for it and are not finding it and you can be the first result. So do something like that. Don't spend too much money. See how it works out. Let it go a couple of months before you turn it off. I would even back up. Before you do any of that sort of stuff, your first ad dollars you ever spend should be on retargeting. Oh yeah, totally. And if you don't have enough people coming to your website to do retargeting, you're in no way, shape, or form ready for paid advertising, in my opinion. Well, I think in most cases, you're probably right. I'd say probably 60 to 70% of the time. Well, let me argue one quick point with that. And that is you credit yourself with luck when it comes to paid advertising and having a business model success. But I'm going to do two points with that. First is there were a lot of other studios not that long after you that had before and after players that went absolutely nowhere. It's true. So that was one point. The second point is you put in way more work into figuring out paid ads compared to any other studio. And so just the sheer fact that you were willing to put in the work for some basic education on the subject, on copywriting, on ads, on how it all works, on how the system works so that you can make the most of it, 95% of people will not put that amount of work in. So if you're just willing to put in basic work, you can get a lot further than anyone else. That's just advice all across the board in any industry, any career, anything you're doing, that advice kind of rings true all across the board. Right. And so case in point, if you put two people in front of me, one of them is a terrible audio engineer, but is a student of life is just the type of person that's like, I'm going to go to the library and get three books on this subject and learn everything about it. You've got that guy. And then you have somebody else who is a naturally awesome audio engineer. And you ask me to predict who will be successful in two years. I'm going to go with the student of life every freaking time. Yep. Me too. I'm going to put all my money on that horse. So let's actually go back to your business model real quick because we got (laughs) way sidetracked, but it's okay because this is an unoutlined, unscripted podcast and we just do whatever the (laughs) hell we want here. Going back to your business model, you were talking about the stability that you get. That's one of the biggest pros. What are some other pros that come with the business model that you've gone with here? Well, so here's the thing. I'm a weirdo. Most people in our industry, their dream is to get a Grammy and to work with Sony, Columbia, Warner Brothers, et cetera. I don't really care to do that. If it comes my way, yeah, sure, maybe that sounds great. But the thing that I have always thought was the coolest thing in the world was when somebody makes a record in a log cabin somewhere with crap gear and it's beautiful and it's authentic and it becomes like an indie darling, you know, the Bonnie Vare record from years ago or the Sufjan Stevens from years ago. Sorry to drop artist names that probably some of you don't know. Don't feel bad about that. Yeah, I have no idea who those people are. I know who Bonavera is. It's when someone does an independent record. They're a little guy that becomes a big guy. I don't want to work with a bunch of big guys that are texting me at 4 a.m. in the morning and demanding that we get everything ready so that it ships to Walmart on time. I want to work with the small guys that are going to be big. That's always what I've thought is the coolest. And I tried to do that with my business. And I just got lucky enough that I pulled it off. And I have a business that's very consistent now. My goal from the beginning was never consistency. I didn't know anything about what we're talking about right now. I just was like, hey, I want to work with a lot of independent artists. How is this a pro? I'm just trying to get where the pro is in this. It's a pro because you get to make a lot of cool friends when you're doing high volume. And my wife will tell you, if I walk into a restaurant, what I want to do is make friends with everybody in the restaurant. 
I want to know the names of all the servers. I want to know the names of the people that, you know, we ordered from. And it's a problem. I just love meeting new people. And, you know, when you're trying to get in and out of a restaurant on a date with your wife, that can be a problem. When you are trying to run a mastering studio and you're working with a couple artists a day, it's great. And it works very much in my favor. But most importantly, it's just really, really fun. I do want to actually point out something that you're not saying, but you're kind of implying. And this is something that I've caught here. This is the opposite of my situation. My pro was I get really deep relationships with the few artists that I work with. You get somewhat good relationships, and I'm sure you have deep relationships with some of your clients, but you get top of mind with hundreds of clients. And so that means if someone asks about mastering or mentions the need for mastering, and you happen to be top of mind with those people, you get that network effect, but you get that multiplied all across the world compared to my little area because I have a dozen clients a year. You know, it's like a very small amount of clients that I'm working with compared to you. So you just have, you may not be as deep relationship with all your clients, but you get a much bigger network effect overall because you just have so many soldiers out there fighting your battle for you. You're hitting the nail on the head. Maybe I should clarify what I love about the pro of a bunch of small clients is this feels like I'm trying to promote myself. That's not how I want this to come off. Do it. Promote it. I like hearing people's stories. I read a lot because I like stories. And with the small client, you get to hear a lot of short stories. I love that. I want to hear about this song. I want to hear why they wrote the song. I want to hear about this new band that they're trying to get off the ground. I want to hear about their studio. And for me, I don't know. For me, that's the life I want. I'm probably too abrasive over the long run to be like, hey, come spend 57 hours with me. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's one of the big things I ran into. And that's why I stopped doing full production and tracking and editing in the studio is because my personality does not lend itself well to be in basically yeah. a sardine can with five other guys. I forgot to talk about that con of long projects as well, but go on with your story. So yeah, you might like our podcast, but you probably don't want to live with me for 57 hours while we work on a record. That's not my wheelhouse. I'm probably too intense for that. I don't know if intense is the right word, but I'm going to bug you. If anyone here knows the Enneagram, which maybe we'll have an episode of that in the future, Chris is an eight on the Enneagram, which is the challenger. <laughs> yep. That's me, baby. Yeah. So inevitably what's going to happen, and I have a long history of this in my relationships, is I'm going to see something and say, you know, this isn't right. And then there's going to be friction and I can't help myself. So as a mastering engineer who likes to make lots of friends and meet people and hear their stories that never becomes an issue for me. But as like the all singing, all dancing producer, not maybe a great thing. Let's shift gears here and go from pros to cons because there are a lot of cons that come with your business model as oh, well. Yeah, when you're doing high volume, I'll go ahead and tell you right now, you're working with a ton of clients. And so this seems to me to be a potential communications nightmare. Is this correct? Yes, it is. So um, if you are... Well, time out real quick before you go into this. You don't have to give us exact specifics. Can you give me a ballpark idea of how many total projects you'll do in a month? How many total free samples that requires to do or quote requests or whatever you do? Can you give us some just rough numbers so we even understand what ballpark you're in? Because I would almost guarantee that no one listening to this podcast isn't even close to the numbers you're working with right now. That's just me guessing. Maybe there is, but I want to yeah, know some numbers. Well, let me dodge this a little bit because I don't want to give <laughs> don't give us numbers, Chris. Specific no numbers. dodge. It's more than you would think. And what, what that essentially okay. ends up- Is that being, 10 people? Is that 10 people you're talking no, to a month? It ends up being hundreds and hundreds a year of paying clients. 
And how many is that per month of conversations that of people interested in working with you? I have no idea. It's a lot. Is it 10, 100 people? Is it 500 people reaching out to you? Is it 1,000 people? Give me, just, I'm going to be nosy as hell here. I'm just genuinely curious what universe you're in. I don't know. It's, I've worked with more than one artist every day for years. I've worked with more than three artists every day for years. It's more than that. Yes. I just want to give everybody an idea of the sheer number of email threads that he has to navigate to do this. Yes. It's a little more complex than that. When you first start out and your systems suck and you're doing high volume, low dollar, the emails are bonkers. It is an untenuable, at times gets really, really difficult. When your systems get really, really, really good, and I made a post in our Facebook community about the power of forms on your website. My forms on my website, like, hey, okay, you just booked a project with me. Here's a form to give me information about your project. Are you looking for really loud masters or are you looking for really good sounding masters? Have you labeled your tracks with their track order or have you labeled your songs with the track order? Have you, there's just a huge number of questions that are easy for the client to answer, but that avoid the necessity of an email thread. So yes, it's a lot of people to talk to, but if your systems are good enough, the clients know that I know everything I need to know. And there's not like that last minute, wait, 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 uh, was this song two or was this song three? Oh gosh, I don't know what you mean. The reason I'm pushing on this so hard is because I just want people to understand that chances are not good that you're going to put the amount of amazing systems in place that Chris has here. So if you're trying to scale to six figures doing high volume, low dollar, it takes a completely different skill set than audio. This is true. It takes a really special, magical combination of skill sets that only one person in the universe that I know possesses, and that's Chris Graham. I don't know many other people. I'm sure there are out there. They do exist. But I don't know many people that have the capabilities of doing what Chris is doing here. And so if you start trying to do mastering projects and only mastering and just forget the fact that you have to generate hundreds of leads per month. If you do get those paid projects, you now have to manage dozens, maybe hundreds of projects per month. And that means you now have a communications nightmare if you don't put these things into place. So to me, that's the con and I'm kind of drawing out from yeah. this conversation. It may not be a con for you, but it would be for almost any other mastering studio. Oh, it is a con for me. So I guess what we would say is if you are low volume, high dollar, your systems are much less important than if you are high volume, low dollar. If your systems are not rock solid in managing projects and in making sure that your clients understand what's going on and that you have all the information you need and they have information they need, there is a multiplier effect. And what's going to happen, especially if like, and I've had this happen before, if one of those systems breaks, have fun. <laughs> it's awful. So that being said, you know, we talk about Derek Sivers on this podcast a lot. He wrote a book called Anything You Want. He's the guy that grew CD Baby. And he has an awesome story that makes me look like a total amateur as far as this high volume, low dollar thing. And at Derek Sivers' peak, he had something like 80,000 customers. In all fairness, he did have a staff of like 50 people or something. Well, he did, but he tells a story that just is mind blowing. And he says, you know, I had to get really good at writing emails because I would send out a newsletter to my 80,000 people. And if I was unclear about something, I would get 5,000 email responses. I would have to hire somebody to answer these emails and it would cost me about $5,000 in labor to have someone one at a time answer all these emails. That's a nightmare. It is a nightmare, but it tells a good story in that when you are low dollar, high volume, 
your systems, it's so important because you can't do high volume, low dollar without really good systems. And inevitably what's going to happen is, and this has been a struggle for me in my whole career, is that sometimes you're big and things are going really well, but then the system hiccups or you make a decision that causes a hiccup or that causes a miscommunication. Then all of a sudden people stop asking you for mastering samples or people start entering their email address wrong and your form or files stop uploading correctly. And you know, you had 10 mastering samples that you did on a Tuesday and you go to send them and all of a sudden nobody gets their samples back. So there's all sorts of weird isms and we are way deep in the weeds here, but your systems become so much more important and it is a weird thing. You have to be good at the service itself. You have to be good at the customer service component. You have to be good at the marketing component. And you have to also be great at not ever avoiding those things you don't necessarily want to do. Because in your business, those things start piling up fast and it will wreck your business. Right. And then the last piece of that systems. I got lucky there. We've got some opportunities afforded to me there. Thank God. But this isn't about me. This isn't about like, yippee, Chris did something crazy. The thing is like, it is about you because your business model is a good example of the high volume, low dollar amount. Yeah, that's true. Working well. And for people to hear both the good and the bad, because here's the thing that I want people to understand in both of our stories here, there's still a ton of variations within both of our stories that someone else might experience slightly differently than us. But in both of our business models, there is no perfect business model out there. I mean, we'll talk about, we'll kind of touch on the recurring revenue model, but even that's not perfect. But between the two of our business models, there's still massive hurdles to overcome. And we're hoping that once you've heard both of our stories, the good and the bad, if you're early in your career and you choose the wrong business model, like you choose Chris's business model, and it turns out you're a system slob, and you have no way to set up proper systems in your business, that's going to be short-lived. Yeah. Or if you're in my world and you are just super self-conscious about raising your rates to $600 a song, that takes a certain kind of confidence that not a lot of people have. Very true. Knowing the battles that you have to fight in each of these business models is honestly like, that is the biggest part of your success. If you choose the wrong business model, you put the right person in the wrong business model, it's going to be doomed to failure. And that's what we're hoping you get out of this. Yeah. Well, you just said something that was really cool. You have a certain tenacity that's impressive of having the nuts to say, well, I'm more expensive this month than I was last month. And I've done that many times. Yeah. I'm awful at that. I've raised my rates. Let me count one, two, maybe four or five times ever in like 10 years. And that's not good. And you know, there's been like some tweaks here and there. Has that even kept up with inflation? I'm just curious. Probably not. 3% a year. (laughs) But I want to say two things about that. One is that the longer I've been in business, the more efficient I get. I'm really fast when I'm mastering a song. I know what I want to do instantaneously when I listen to a song. Because you put in your 6,000 hours or 10,000 hours or whatever. Right. My blink. So I can sit down. I often know what I want to do before I even play. I can read the waveform like Neo in the Matrix at this point. But because of that, my dollars per hour have only gone way north my whole career because I'm passing that savings onto my customers, which in turn gives me more customers. Yeah, it's like you may have risen your rates a few times, but at the end of the day, you've become way more profitable yeah. over those years without the need for rate increases, which is the beauty of your business model is you become more efficient. So it becomes more affordable to your clients. You can charge less than your competitors and still earn more than them because yes. you have put in the work to do that. Exactly. So, and the other thing I would say 
is that when I first got into systemizing so that I could continue to grow and handle it, basically, could I complete more projects in an hour? My initial hesitation was that I thought that systemization was about removing the human element. And it was about not talking to my customers and being that prototypical. There was a funny meme I saw on Facebook today and someone got on Google and typed in, why are mastering engineers so? And you can imagine like <laughs> rude, I'm doing that shit right now. Arrogant. Like, like just dumb, you know, like toe headed. Like it's just all these different, I don't know if he faked it or what, but it was just, it was not very long. Like it was like maybe two nice things and the rest were anti-people. They were anti-social skills. So the thing I'm trying to say here is that when your systems get better, especially with the high volume, low dollar thing, it gives you the opportunity to be more relational. You're less burned out at the end of the day. And my favorite part of building all these systems is I'll never forget, like there have been times when I was like, okay, I just finished a new system and wow, I'm saving a measurable amount of time each day. And I'm going to put that time into making phone calls and oh my gosh, my satisfaction in my job has dramatically increased. And so the systems afforded me the opportunity to be more relational and not be like, dude, I'm, I'm trying to master so many songs today. I don't want to talk to you. I don't care about your stupid song. Like moving away from that and more towards like, dude, tell me your story was rocket fuel for my business and was fun. I think that's actually a huge takeaway is if you go back to episode number 26, we talk about systems that you can implement today in order to help your business run more efficiently. Go back and listen to that episode. We talk about a lot of different things in that episode that you can look to implement. But the bottom line is, if it saves you time that you can then spend back on your customers or in your business or on some other major thing, that is huge when it comes to getting yourself out of this rut that you might be in right now. Yeah. As we approach this third business model, this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but I think it's worth pointing out that the time is right in the podcast, I feel like, is that you need to as a studio owner, as somebody who wants to do some kind of music or audio thing for a living, you need to think about the life that you want and you need to create a business model that facilitates that so that rather than fitting your life in the cracks of your business, that you're able to fit your business in the cracks of your life. And hear me on this, especially you young guys, it's really hard to visualize this when you're 22, 23, 24. If you find the right person, you get married and you have kids, you'll thank me later. You want to build a business that's compatible with the life that you want. My whole thing to get real vulnerable with you guys was all this is hashed out, you know, with my family. So I don't think I'm putting anything too far out there that'll offend anybody. And I don't think my dad listens to this podcast anyways. But for me, my dad was on the road a lot growing up and that created a lot of tension for our family. I knew very young that I didn't want to be on the road. And I became a musician at a young age and was making a really good living as a musician and knew that success, that the business model meant a lot of travel. And I didn't want to do that. So that's why I got into audio. So I think as you're thinking about what you want your life to look like, what does a business look like that's compatible with that? That's what you should be working on building. Yeah, I've put a lot of thought into that these past few years. And I'd say that's probably my biggest reason for moving into real estate. So hardcore, like I don't talk about this on the podcast much, but most of my income over the past three years has actually been from real estate. And the reason for that is because that is a business model that fits my lifestyle more. And that's why I've put so much of my time and effort and energy and money into that world. Let's move on to the third business model here. And that is the recurring revenue model. I know we're running late as hell in this show, but at the end of the day, it's our podcast. We can do what we want. 
Um, <laughs> you can stop listening if you're over this. <laughs> the recurring revenue model, we, we talk about it a little bit back on episode 36, where we talk about sync licensing, the gateway to passive income for audio entrepreneurs. There are a lot of different paths to recurring revenue. We're not going to talk as much about those specific paths. We also talk about it back in episode number 33, where we talk about the five studio niches ripe for the taking. We talk about the podcast editing, which is a recurring revenue model. We're not going to focus on the specifics here. What we are going to talk about is the benefits of the recurring revenue model, the pros and cons of the recurring revenue model, because I think that's really where the biggest difference is here compared to what Chris does and compared to what I do. So as far as reoccurring revenue goes, this is a little out of left field. I know that many of you are like, reoccurring revenue? How, how is that even possible? So let's back up. So I talked about figuring out what you want your life to look like. Unless you are even more of a hippie than I am, you will probably have rent or a mortgage and you will probably have a car payment and you will probably have a Netflix monthly bill and you will probably have fill in the blank. You're going to have monthly bills. So the business that you want needs to have a certain amount of income each month, right? So the upside of my business model is that my very difficult to build as far as the marketing piece and the systems piece goes, but the great upside is really consistent income month to month. On Brian's side, you can make a lot more money a lot faster, but the income is all over the place. You're going to have really good months and really slow months. And unless you have the discipline to do what Brian did and save a bunch of money, it's going to be rough. And there's a whole lot more that goes in that equation. But there's this third business model, which I think the smartest, most creative of you and people in our industry are going to figure out how to do is a reoccurring revenue model. It's some sort of subscription. And there are a couple different types of businesses you could build that facilitate this. We mentioned on episode 33, five studio niches right for the taking that there are business models that lend itself to reoccurring. So two of those business models are one, having a podcasting studio, because guess what? Podcasters like to be consistent. They like to drop every week because they can't grow their podcast unless they do. Which, by the way, we have not missed a week yet in the past over a year, and our podcast has grown every single month. Yeah. Kudos to you, Chris, for showing up. Unbelievable. So a podcast studio is interesting because you have a lot of people who have no idea how to audio engineer who are willing to pay you to record them each week. Record and or edit and or edit and or mix and or the whole nine yards. There's a growing demand for good audio engineers amongst podcasters. Another one, and I love this business model. If any of you are having a lot of success with this, please go to Facebook, go to the Six Figure Home Studio community and brag about yourself. Make a post and say, hey, Brian and Chris said this would be okay. But if you have figured out how to convince artists to sign up for a subscription with you to record one song per month, hats off. You're living the freaking dream because your revenue is consistent and you have a low volume, high dollar service. Probably. You might figure out how to do high volume, low dollar on that. Super interesting stuff though. To talk about the biggest benefit for the reoccurring business model here is that once you find a customer, you're done at least for a long while. You have that income that you can almost guarantee is going to be in your bank account every single month. And in Chris's world and in my world, we're lucky to get the same customer twice in a year. If that. True. And usually when we find a customer, we'd have to then go find another customer and then we have to go find another customer. But the reoccurring revenue model, you have a customer that is now under your wing. And then you can go find another customer that's just going to stack the income on top of that. And you have that baseline of income every single month that you can depend on and you can budget around and you don't have those wild swings of income like I have. Yeah. If 
the fastest way to six figures is a reoccurring revenue model. If you can find a way that makes it work. Yeah. So if you really want to put your creativity to the test, figure out how to do this. And here's the thing. I think it serves artists better than a traditional model because if an artist wants to keep their fans engaged, they have to consistently drop songs. This whole model of like, well, we're going to take years off and then drop a new album doesn't work unless you're 21 pilots. You know, like their engagement with their fans is insane. Their fans love them more than the next 10 bands that their fans <laughs> love. Like it's a, they're, they're an anomaly. So don't look at them and say, well, but 21 Pilots releases records. Well, that band isn't as good as 21 Pilots. So this release one song per record, for most of us, the bulk of the market, as far as producing goes, goes into up and coming artists, right? Obviously. So if you can convince an up and coming artist, look, if you want to get popular, I can help you. But what you need to do is you need to subscribe to recording one song with me for 300 bucks, whatever, each month. And we're going to sit down with the calendar and we're going to go ahead and we're going to block that time out. And I'm going to give you a deal. It's going to be cheaper the more months you book in advance with me. And we're going to do an automatic withdrawal on your credit card, which is definitely what I recommend. And if you do that, you can get to the point, if your systems are decent, where you can say, well, if you cancel within this amount of time, then you substitute this amount of money and then we need to reschedule and da, 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 you know, figure that all out. Then you could conceivably get to the point where every day is booked for the foreseeable future. And then it's just a matter of, hey guys, I'm raising my rates 20 bucks this month. You cool with that? Yeah, man, let's do it. So that reoccurring business model is fascinating because it delivers the most important thing in our industry and it is predictability. Stability and predictability. I will say to counter that and to bring up probably one of the biggest cons when it comes to the reoccurring revenue model. And that is if you don't have a model that works for both parties and is bringing value to both parties, yeah. you're going to have people drop left and right. It's called churn. The amount of customers you lose every month is going to skyrocket. It's going to be like trying to fill a leaky bucket with massive holes in it. It's not possible. No matter how much money you dump into marketing or how many clients you get, you're losing them faster than you can gain them. And that is a broken model that you cannot sustain. So that's one thing that many businesses on a reoccurring revenue model have completely failed. They've completely bombed because they couldn't figure out how to add value to both parties, their value and the client's value. And instead they focused on that stability. They put the blinders on because they wanted that stability and that income that's coming in every single month. But they didn't stop to think about, is this adding value to my client? every single month. And if it's not, they're going to cancel and I'm going to lose that customer. So here's what I would say. I think a fun way to end this episode is for us to just sort of spitball some ideas for you guys on how to build a business like this. I don't know of anyone that's, that's done this on any large scale. I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure we just don't know about them. But Brian, let's just spitball some ideas on how to add value to their customers. How do you build up your roster of reoccurring artists so that they come back each month and ideally pay you in advance. There's a couple of things to keep in mind. You can do like a subscription model like you're talking about. That's all fine and well. That's a little more difficult in my mind to sustain long-term and to really come up with a model that benefits both parties. But what I will say is just because it's not on a recurring subscription or reoccurring subscription, is it recurring or reoccurring? I don't fucking know. It doesn't matter. Someone listening to the podcast can correct us. <laughs> Email podcast at the sixfigurehomestudio.com with your English knowledge. Just because they're not on a recurring subscription doesn't mean it's not a recurring revenue business. For example, if I am an audio editor and I'm working with 10 different studios doing all of their 
drum alignment or drum quantization, drum editing, or I'm doing all of their vocal comping for them or doing all of their pitch correction. Any client that that person sends me every single month, I don't have to go find those clients. That's a recurring income. Now it's going to vary a little bit because it's not a set subscription every single month, although you could probably figure out something that works that way. But at the end of the day, those people are still giving me clients every single month. So don't think it has to be on some sort of recurring revenue like you would with your QuickBooks account. You can find ways to get that predictable, stable revenue every month without it being on a model like that. And to me, that's a little easier, I think, to do. I love that. So here's an idea with that. So I have a friend of mine who is struggling with this stuff and he was thinking about how to do a business like this. And my advice to him, there were a couple different services he was thinking about doing, but he's primarily an unbelievable editor. His name's Micah Powers. Unbelievable editor. This guy brings a sheen and a tightness that's mind-blowing. And so we were talking about him getting a little bit more into that. And my advice to him that I'd give to anybody else is reach out to some studios. If you're doing the editing thing or if you're doing the, well, even the mixing thing, heck, even the mastering thing, is I would reach out to studios and say, hey, um, that you know do a lot of volume. And you would say, hey, could you send me a song that you guys have already finished and released and let me do my thing to it and send it back and see what you guys think? basically a retroactive free sample. That's my advice is reach out to these people. Say, Hey, let did me you do this when you started at all. Or did you? Yeah. That's how I got started. So I reached out to studios and begged them to send me something that had already been released. And honestly, it's probably my biggest regret that I didn't do it more, but reach out, beg and say, Hey, can I show you what I can do? And if you're good at it and you're cheaper, or if you're way better than their other guy and cost more, you know, that there's any combination of those two things. This goes back to episode number 54, what drug dealers can teach recording studios. Bingo. This is that free sample that you're trying to get them hooked on what you offer. And if you can get your foot in the door, give them that free hit, that free sample. And it's an unsolicited request for a free sample. That is a way to get your foot in the door where you're not having to pay for advertising. You're not having to do a whole lot of work. It's not hard to reach out to someone and ask if you can do a free test mix, a free test master, a free yeah. test edit. I will say I have been asked about these things in the past. I haven't really jumped on any of them, but I'm one person. You're going to get rejected way more than you'll ever get oh, yeses yeah. on these sorts of things. But honestly, if you think about it from a recurring revenue standpoint, if you're an audio editor or you do remote drums or you do any sort of work where that person might come back to you multiple times, then if you're hitting up the right people, what I call VIP clients, people that send you tons of work every single month or year, then you don't have to get that many yeses. You get two or three yeses out of hundreds of no's, then you've just added a lot of income to your bottom line every month. So let's say hypothetically that you are an aspiring mix engineer and that one of the things that you're really good at is you're a chameleon. Let's say you're really good at imitating other people's mixes. You know, we talked about on a previous episode about ripping other producers off and ripping other people's style off and the problems with that. But let's say that's what you're good at. Let's say that you're really good at like, I can make a song sound just like Billy Decker can. I just don't have a name to go with it. So here's my advice to you. Reach out to Billy Decker and tell him that and say, man, love what you do. My mixes sound really close to yours. So here's what I propose. I bet you would love to have someone prep your mixes for you. And I bet if you had someone that you were really, really happy with, that eventually you'd want to hand off more and more and more of the heavy lifting to that person. That's sort of a dream if you're a mix engineer. Let me add to that because I actually put a note in Pro Tools called Knowledge Bomb because that to me is absolute genius. And something I didn't think about before, when you can rip someone off, rip someone's sound off, 
this opens up an opportunity that I haven't really thought of before. You would think you wouldn't go straight to the person who you're ripping off, but I just thought of this as you're saying this. If you take your ability to sound like this other person and you say, hey, I know you're busy. If you have any artists that you just either don't want to work with or don't have time to work with, I would love to pick that sort of work up and you can work out a commission or they may just do it because they like you. But if there's some way you can add value, either doing a free test mix or you're just picking up scraps or helping them with mix prep for free or whatever that happens to be. But if you can be the person they're passing their scraps to, that's a really good way to get started in yeah, my opinion. That's a great idea. Because there's idea. so many artists that I've passed on that if I had someone that sounded just like me, I'd probably send them or close to like me, similar to me. I'd probably send them to that person if I like that person and could trust that that person would put a pretty good product out. That's an interesting way to start. You know, in a situation where you're like, hey, okay, I'll take on this project. I'm full up. I don't want to take more projects, but I know I can hand it to this guy who sounds just like me. And then he's going to hand me a Pro Tools session, plugins and all. And I'm going to be like, yeah, that's 95% of the way there. Tweak, 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 and send to client. That is a dreamy scenario. If I were a mix engineer, that's what I'd want. What do you think Chris Lord Algae does? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guarantee you that there is yeah. some kid listening to this podcast right now that's like, that's what I do for that guy. Yeah. I mix yep. the hicks. Yep. You don't even know about me. But that's interesting because in a situation like that, the long-term impact is that if you've got consistent revenue, you've got a chance at living long enough to build a great business. That's the real rub here is that this isn't about how good you are. It's about how long you can survive. And if you can survive long enough, man, then opportunities will come. And you might be amazing, but it might be the right skill at the wrong time. You know, to be a great mix engineer in 2008 with the financial crisis and all that stuff, like it's rough. How good you are didn't necessarily matter. So just to kind of wrap this episode up, I know we got way off into the weeds on this episode multiple, multiple times because there's just so much within this subject. When you start pulling apart different business models, there is a lot to unravel with this. So if you're wondering how we got off the weeds so much, it's fine. Just know that there's a lot of knowledge bombs from this episode. Just try to pick the few that you got from this. If you're maybe going down the path of the wrong business model, you're trying to do Chris's business model, but you know you're not a systems-minded person. You know you don't have the technical ability to put all of the technical pieces of software in a place to run your business so that you can then focus on mastering. If that's not the world you want to be in, don't go to mastering. If you're my world and you just don't see yourself... Well, and let me interject there. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from getting into mastering. I am. I'm trying to dissuade anyone who's getting into mastering that doesn't have, <laughs> that doesn't have the right capabilities and brain to get into mastering. That's what I'm trying to dissuade. Well, the other flip side is for them to get into a high dollar mastering. I'm pretty cheap. If your thing is like, I want to collect a lot of analog gear and convince people that that's what really matters because <laughs> it doesn't. But if you can convince people of that and charge, you know, 300 a song or something like that, then maybe that would work out great for you. But yeah, don't try to be like inexpensive and do a ton of projects at the same time. Yep. And again, we're just trying to show you how these business models operate so that you can make the informed decision, what you want to pursue. Or if you're spinning your wheels for years in a certain business model, maybe it's time to put a foot down, pivot into another business model, whether it's reoccurring revenue or it's the high dollar, low work. Maybe it's time to pivot as well. But this episode hopefully gave you kind of a deep dive into each of these three business models so that you can go and make an informed decision on what's going to work for you because there is no one size fits all for anyone on this earth. I'm sorry, it doesn't exist. But what we can do is give you our perspectives and then hopefully you can take that and run with it and have some success in your business. Not just a successful business, but a successful life with your business that supports that. 
So that is it for this episode of the Six Figure Home Studio podcast. As always, we have the show notes at the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 58 or slash 58. That's where we have links to books we mentioned in this episode, links to other episodes that we mentioned in this episode, links to that mouse pad that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, a photo of that, and a link to the Facebook community where we are actually discussing this episode in our community. So if you want to join the discussion, just go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 58. Funny story, something really stuck with me from this episode that bothered me, and that was the discussion of, is it reoccurring or is it recurring? Which one do we use when it comes to income that comes in every single month? Is that recurring income? Or is that reoccurring income? I know the suspense is killing you. I looked this up. And from what my research shows, the appropriate usage is the recurring income. If it's something that happens predictably every month, that is recurring. If it's something that just happens occasionally or something that doesn't happen often and it happened again, then it's reoccurring. There's your English lesson for the day. Next week's episode is not about English. It's not about coffee. It's not about whatever other stuff we talked about today on today's way off the beaten path episode. Next week's episode is actually awesome. We interview a guy named Austin Hull. He is a very successful pot producer who got his start 100% online. And what I mean is he didn't do any local work. He did not rely on any word of mouth advertising. He did not rely on working with local bands. He started his business online. He's grown his business online and he's maintained his business online with only bands and artists that he has found online all through the power of Facebook communities. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you are in a city that just doesn't make sense to work with local artists or doesn't make sense to connect with other producers who can send you work consistently, like a place like Nashville or LA or New York, if that is you, if you are looking for a place to find online clients, next week's episode is 100% for you. Do not miss it. And just so you know, next Tuesday is Christmas Day. So our episode is actually going to come out the day after Christmas on Wednesday. So on your way home from Christmas with your families, you can listen to our episode on that fun little road trip or on the plane or whatever you do. But that comes out Wednesday morning, bright and early 6 a.m. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy hustling. Whoa.